All right, guys, before we get started, you know the drill. Tell your friends about us. Hit like and subscribe. Leave a review on Apple iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at LaunchpadPod on our website, launchpadpod.com. Guys, it's September. Thanks to everybody who supported the hell out of us all through August, listening to our Final Destination series. That was incredible. We really appreciate everybody who reached out to us, told us what they thought, told us about their crazy weird stories. That was super fun to hear some of those. Uh, We had a great time and we got more stuff coming up, but today we are dropping an amazing interview from San Diego Comic-Con with Craig Miller. This guy is a man of many, 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 many hats. He's been a writer. He developed the Star Wars fan club. He's done PR for movies, taking them to the earliest of Comic-Cons. He brought C-3PO and R2-D2 to Sesame Street. He's done writing for some of your favorite Saturday morning cartoons like G.I. Joe, Ghostbusters, the Smurfs, it goes on and on and on. This guy is a legend. So we loved to jump in, talking to him, hearing about what he's doing, hearing about what he's done. This is a great interview, and we will be dropping more San Diego Comic-Con content as the months go on. We really appreciate it. Everybody, thanks again for following us, giving us a listen, and giving us all that support. We really appreciate that. And now, on with the show. Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three. All right, guys, Launchpad Podcast here at San Diego Comic-Con 2019. Matt, we have a special guest for the Launchpad. Who do we got? We have the wonderful Craig Miller. Now, I don't even know what to call you. You are a writer. You are a producer. You are a publicist. You are a, I mean... You're a man of many, many hats. I, yes, I've, I've worn many, many hats over... I've been in the entertainment industry uh, 40-some years now. It's the pause before you do them. Like, when you're like, all right, let me think about this. When you have to do that math, you've been here for a while. <laughs> yeah, I guess 40, like 44 years I've been in the entertainment industry. I'm, I mean, I was very young when I started. My, my first job out of college was... Uh, publicizing, working on the publicity of Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back. And uh, so I, you know, I started in my early 20s and I've been doing it a long time. Now, Star Wars is one of those movies that like revolutionized publicity. How did you even get into that? And how did people tell you what you were selling? Well, it was not my idea. There was a fellow named Charlie Lippincott who was the head of basically marketing, publicity, and everything, licensing for Star Wars. And Charlie got the idea of coming to conventions and marketing the film directly to the fans to start building up word of mouth. And he did that starting in July of 1976 with a science fiction convention in L.A. And I I knew Charlie, and I was consulting with him about it because I I was a fan. I grew up as a comics fan and a science fiction fan. So this was my world. And Charlie liked science fiction and comics, but he wasn't really a part of fandom. And so he was talking to several people for information. And so, like I say, he started with a slideshow at the WesterCon, which is a small science fiction convention. Then he came here and he had um, Roy Thomas and Howard Chaikin, who were doing or were about to be doing the Star Wars comic book, but they were big names in comics and they helped bring in an audience Mm. to see the presentation on the movie. Um, 
in 76, and then he went to the World Science Fiction Convention, which used to be the big convention at, you know, like 7,000, 8,000 people. <laughs> <laughs> that year was in Kansas City, and they brought a big display of posters and costumes and props and photos, Macquarie paintings. And, and this is before the movie's released? Oh, yeah, this is 1976. Uh, Gary Kurtz and Mark Hamill came, and the two of them and Charlie did a presentation, the slideshow and uh, Q&A, and that was starting to help build up word of mouth. And then they continued doing stuff all through the year. And, of course, there was the regular kind of publicity with, you know, newspapers and magazines. And Time magazine did this big spread, best movie of the year about Star Wars. Um, wow, really? And, oh, yeah. It was, they... Was supposed to Have be you seen it? I've, se I've seen it once or twice. <laughs> once or twice. But I mean, it was supposed to be the cover story, but a surprise result in the Israeli elections knocked Star Wars off the cover. Oh. So it ended up as a little snipe in the corner that said best movie of the year. And the same eight page pictorial ran in the movie, in the magazine. So, I mean, that didn't hurt the publicity either. But also, wow. the fans being excited for a year beforehand got us those large lines at the theaters. Sure. And because that was not common for any kind of movie yeah. back then, and not, not common, it probably was in, unheard of, and especially for science fiction, which wasn't a popular medium back then, no one went to science fiction movies. Right. And so there was publicity of the fact that people were in line and it, that became a big deal. And all of that, plus the fact that Star Wars is a great movie, went to build the success of Star Wars. When you guys are doing that sort of what we would now call viral or guerrilla marketing and publicity, stuff that like, isn't done traditionally or conventionally, did you guys know that you were breaking new ground and was it hard to do that or were you just running and gunning and doing what was working? Well, now again, I didn't come on full time until the Star Wars opened. I was just a consultant before mm -hmm. then. But yeah, it was completely different. No one had sold directly to the fans of anything. Uh, you know, you might do a little bit at an event or something, mm -hmm. but as a major way of marketing no it had never been done before it was it was being invented at the time and it was really charlie i give all credit to coming up with it at the same time he was doing a lot of early licensing licensing was not right. big before star wars it right. happened but not a lot and a lot of it followed the release of the movies charlie went out and went to Ballantyne about the novelization, made the deal with Marvel Comics to, and have the comics coming out in the months immediately, starting to come out in the months immediately before. There was a deal with what was then Kenner, it's now Hasbro, right. but Kenner was the company then. And a couple of other licensees, tops for the cards and uh, factors, et cetera, for the posters and t-shirts and things like that. Those were the only licensees. And for a movie of like Star Wars at that time, that was an enormous amount of licensing. Yeah. And that was all not, it wasn't for the money from licensing, although no one complains about money. Sure. But no one expected that to be huge. It was to have the name Star Wars and the images of Star Wars out in front of people so that they would think of it as something normal and interesting and that they'd want to see. How much of a sneak peek do you get into a property like Star Wars? Like, 
did you get a, get to read a script, or were you kind of promoting, like for Empire Strikes Back, were you promoting something that you really didn't know what it was going to be? Well, for Star Wars, Star Wars was, was started before I was involved. Mm -hmm. So I came into it late in the process. For Empire, I had the script from the, as soon as there was a script. In fact, uh, we... I had Lee Brackett's script, you know, when Lee finished her draft. I knew Lee already because I was involved in the science fiction community. In fact, I was the one who was contacted and told that she had passed away and had to notify the rest of the company. Oh. But, yeah, no, we knew what it was. We weren't marketing it in the dark. Okay. You know, you, you can't. So you got a, like, a first draft of... Empire Strikes Back. When you finish reading that and put put it down, what's your first reaction to that? <laughs> well, the the Lee script was somewhat different than the final movie. Okay, sure. but you know every draft was exciting. I had I had Lee's outline before that. Oh wow! You know we knew what was there, and you know the and the movie kept evolving. George did some polishes after Lee Lee died, and then he brought in uh, Larry Kasdan to do the rewrites. Um, and, you know, and the movie kept getting stronger and stronger. And then a lot of what Irv Kirshner did as the director right. helped strengthen it as well. Now, your involvement with Empire, you've now been on Star Wars. And for your position, you've learned from there. Uh, how did you go about tackling Empire differently than you may have Star Wars? Well, we, for one thing... Not surprisingly, it was a lot easier to get people sure. <laughs> interested in Empire. Um, Sequel to the biggest movie ever. Magazines were more interested in running stories. We had magazines back then. Sure. We didn't have the internet. Um, so there was a lot you know, we could do that we couldn't necessarily get done on Star Wars. Because back then, it, on Star Wars, it was like, what? A science fiction movie? No, we don't want to cover that. Sure. Um, Empire was a lot easier sell in that regard, but we we didn't take it for granted. We still did everything we could to market it. Like I was producer for Lucasfilm on episodes of Sesame Street yeah. with C-3PO and R2-D2, and I would uh, I suggested to Sesame Street we do it, and they thought that was great. Um, and you know they wrote all the scripts, and I would ap approve or disapprove the scripts. It was only one, because we did a bunch of separate segments, and there was only one I had to say we couldn't do. Because what was it? I've told the story before, so you're not getting a scoop, but um, <laughs> it's, they wanted R2 to sing the ABCs. Oh. And I said, R2 can't talk, right. so we can't do that. And they said, oh, oh no, we, we figured out how to do it, and we can use a synthesizer, and so R2 could go, A. You know, make these sounds that sound like the letters. And I said, no, because if he can say the alphabet, he can talk. Right. We can't do that. Interesting. So we reassigned it to C-3PO to sing the uh, alphabet song, and R2 dances around with him. Right. Oh, man. I remember some of those Star Wars ones. I remember like, that one specifically. I, the, yeah, the synthesizer would ruin my childhood. I wouldn't. I yeah. would have called them out. It's like a four-year-old yeah. kid. Well, I would have called them out. And, on and that. that was part of why, rather than just saying, "Yeah, R two and three PO will show up," we have a producer for Lucasfilm on these kinds of event projects to make sure it stays true to whatever it is we were doing, and 
The other cool thing for me besides, you know, Sesame Street, wow, I have photos of me with Big Bird, you know. How cool. Uh, That's so cool. Is R2 used to take, because the technology was more primitive, used to take two people to operate. So we brought one guy um, from ILM who actually drove R2 and could fix him when he didn't work because, you know, sure. radio control is magic. Um, but you needed a second operator to operate the head. So I got to operate the head on all of the segments that I produced of uh, Sesame Street and commercials wow. and award ceremonies and stuff. That and you is... don't have a background in that? That was just like icing on the cake? Yeah, well, there's no background <laughs> in operating R2's head. You, you know, you have a control with two toggles and a switch, and you know, it doesn't, doesn't take much training. That's, I mean, that's, but there are people who would it, kill for it, that it's, job. It's a really cool thing to get to do, but it isn't a skill. <laughs> it's not, I see. It's not in the skill section of the resume. Okay. <laughs> that's hilarious. Uh, would you talk a little bit about the fan club that you not only oversaw, but you helped created and cultivated. I created the fan club. That was one of the things I was hired to do when I came on staff full time and was given the title director of fan relations. I set up a team to respond to all the fan mail. And then we set up the official Star Wars fan club. And I figured out what we wanted to have in the membership kit. I worked with Ralph McQuarrie to design the poster that we gave away. Mm -hmm. It was my design and Ralph painted it. Not that Ralph needed my ideas, sure. but since I was in charge, I got to say, I'd like the poster to be this. Um, and then we had the newsletter and I wrote all but one or two articles in the first three years of the newsletter, which was Bantha Tracks. Bantha Tracks, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> the first issue or two didn't have a name. It was just the newsletter. Right. And then we had a contest for naming it, and Bantha Tracks became the name. That's so great. Oh, my gosh. So when you're when you're setting up a, a fan club, obviously people have been doing fan clubs for a while. Elvis had a fan club, Beetle had. But was this one of the first ones to be done for a movie property? May have been the first when I when we started, I went and met with companies that ran fan mail operations and fan clubs, and I didn't like the way they operated. Mm -hmm. They were really, even before the internet, they were address harvesters. Mm -hmm. okay. That was their business. Was you know you'd get people to send in five dollars and you'd mail them some cheap crap that had something to do with whatever star or movie or whatever they were interested in and then you had their address to send them ads mm. and we i didn't like their attitudes i didn't like the stuff they produced and we decided even though it would cost us more money to run it in-house and so we d we just decided we'll do it ourselves it wasn't a money-making operation five dollars didn't cover a member didn't cover the cost, but we wanted to do it because we wanted to keep fans involved and entertained. And we, if we were going to have our name on it, we wanted it to be quality. That's right. And it fosters a community that, that wasn't just marketing. Like, obviously, yeah. you want people to be fans of it, but you're cultivating something, and that's important. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, you know, I was in my early 20s. Most of our members were between, say, 5 and 18, mm -hmm. but I was close enough in age to that and a big enough geek to know what I would have wanted to read if I was getting this newsletter. Sure. And so that's the articles that were in the newsletter, the interviews, the stuff about the special effects and the making of, and all that stuff was because I knew I'd want to know that if I was sitting at home getting this newsletter. 
So that's the way we designed it, and, and I wrote it, and we did it. So here's a big nerd question. As a fan of the property, do you have a favorite background alien, like a creature in Star Wars, just something that <laughs> every time question. you see that movie, you're like, yeah, that guy, I like him. You know, I, I, I don't think I, I really have a single favorite. I mean, R2 has a place in my heart because oh. I worked a lot with R2. <laughs> place in your head? Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, C-3PO, Tony Daniels. Yeah. I really enjoyed working with Tony, you know, because we brought him in for Sesame Street. Mm -hmm. um, R2 was radio controlled. We didn't bring Kenny in for that, but we brought Tony in and I worked with him on that. And... Um, we had a lot of fun together. We were in New York for Halloween uh, when we were shooting all of these segments. And so we went out to um, Greenwich Village to see the big costume parades and stuff. Oh, that's awesome. And, you know, we had fun. And I actually have a line in The Empire Strikes Back. I gave Tony a lot of wisecracks and insults for R2-D2. And he actually uses one, or one ended up. I don't know how many of them he used, but one ended up in Empire. So which one? He called. They're standing at the door to the ice cave near mm -hmm. the beginning of the movie, uh -huh. and they don't know where R two is. And he calls him a miserable little short circuit. <laughs> <laughs> a miserable short circuit. Some phrase like that. It was the short circuit part that. That's that was super my funny. line. Oh, that's so, so cool. You are clearly a fan of, of, the, of the, let's just say, for sake of argument, the original trilogy, right? The oh, original absolutely. Star Wars movies. And it seems that, that you got the job there and started working with that and loving it at the same time. Was it ever hard to balance those two things? Like that, the fact that that is your job, but it's also like something that you're passionate on your own time about? Uh, it's not. It's not hard to balance. I mean, it's kind of a win-win. You know, <laughs> that's the answer like, I was hoping. I go, I go to work and I like my job. You know, it. I mean, it's not to say everything was easy and everything was fun. There were difficulties sometimes. Some stuff was hard to do, but you know, I'd rather do it on something I'm really excited about. You know, it it, it beats uh, you know shoveling coal or, or sure. something. Um, you know, and it's, you know, it's work, it's a job, um, but, you know, it, it's fun at the same time. I met a lot of people. I got to do a lot of really cool things. Um, I went on to work on a lot of different movies after I left Lucasfilm. Yeah. We're going to transition into those. We could talk to you about Star Wars all day, but there's one thing that you worked on that we would love to hear you, what, what your involvement was. On John Carpenter's The Thing. Uh, okay. I was brought in by Universal. I consult, was consulting with Universal on a couple of movies, and one of them was, was The Thing. Um, and this was John's first studio picture. He'd done a lot of independent movies, but hadn't done one as a studio film, which has a whole level of complexity to it. Right. It doesn't make the film better or worse, sometimes per worse. Se. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's, you know, you've got a lot more bureaucracy involved, but you have a lot more money involved, so you can do things you couldn't do. Um, and it was great. Working with John was great. There was a producer on the film named Stu Cohen, mm -hmm. who I worked mm -hmm. with a lot. He was a great guy. He went on to do the Equalizer TV show. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what happened to Stu. We kind of lost touch after that. Um, but it was a lot of fun working on it. We shot a lot of it in sound stages at Universal in the middle of summer when it was, you know, 98 degrees outside and the sound stages were down around 40. 
<laughs> you know, so that was always exciting going in and out. People were always getting colds. Sure. And, you know, we, we had the uh, mechanical dogs, the, the ones that Rob Botin made yeah. for the special effects, which were amazing. And in fact, the Humane Society insisted on examining to make sure we weren't doing things with real dogs. Wow. Because that, that's how lifelike they appeared. Yeah. It, w- it was a good time. We did a lot of, we, I brought that uh, here to Comic-Con as well. This was back in the area before the studios would budget money to bring directors and sure. stars in. But we still did a slideshow here. We did a, at, here and at other conventions, we did a draw the thing contest where we had a description of the thing from the original book. And we had a form, and you filled out the form, and you drew your picture of the thing. And I think first prize was a visit to the set where oh, we would man. fly, you know, two people in and go to the set. And I forget what all the prizes were, but we did that. That was only at conventions where you could enter it. It wasn't like you could go to Target or something. It was sure. strictly a convention promotion. Yeah. We republished the original short story and distributed those at Who goes there? Who goes there? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, so we did a lot of stuff to bring it to fans in ways that, you know, if you weren't in fandom, you would not see. And, you know, we distributed posters to comic shops and book, science fiction bookstores and stuff and did a lot of that kind of stuff. And John did a lot of interviews with Starlog and places. And, um, you know, so it was great. From those contests, do you remember any of the drawings? What were people drawing for something like this? Well, there were, it, was, it was a broad range because some yeah. of them were little kids. Okay. Some of them were professional illustrators. Interesting. You know, they were they were all pictures of monsters, basically. Yeah. You know, many a lot of them were, there were a lot of tentacles and stuff. But we're talking, you know, 30 years ago. I don't really remember sure, individual no. drawings. Do you remember what the, the numbers were like? Like, if you're only uh, offering that that opportunity to participate in that contest at conventions. Do you have any idea how many people participated? Oh, not many. Uh, relative, I mean, relative to what sure. you would do on the internet today or something. Right. This was hundreds of entries, not God, thousands can you or tens that? of thousands. Yeah. I mean, nowadays they do a contest for Marvel and it's a million people will enter. It's like unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. No, this was, you know, low numbers. So you had a really good chance. Sure. And I forget who all were the judges, but we brought people in to judge. Just like when we did the uh, Bantha tracks, that was all, you know, people at Lucasfilm and George got voted on who should get the, you know, what the title should be. And we did a cartoon contest, Star Wars cartoon contest for Bantha Tracks. And it, once again, it was people at Lucasfilm, and then George made the final decision from the finalists. So you've done amazing things, tons and tons of stuff, and some of the stuff that we were you know, looking into, you've gotten to do a lot of cartoons. And one of my all-time favorites you, you worked on was the real Ghostbusters. Like oh, That yeah, was... Yeah. <laughs> Formative for me. This is a completely different thing than what we've been talking about so far, right? Yeah, another hat. So take us into what did you do on on The Real Ghostbusters? I left Lucasfilm after Empire. I became an independent consultant, and I decided I wanted to get into something else, something more directly creative. I mean, part of what I was doing was trying to be creative in marketing, but so I decided to try writing, and a friend of mine... um, J. Michael Straczynski, Joe Straczynski, who's best known for Babylon 5, uh, Thor, and lots of other things, uh, had been hired to be 
the showrunner on the first season of The Real Ghostbusters. And I asked Joe if he'd give me a chance to pitch on the show. And he did. And I ended up writing, and he liked what I pitched. And he ended up buying three scripts from me on The Real Ghostbusters. After that, I left and went to another show called The Bionic Six and wrote 10 episodes of that. And I've been writing and producing animation ever since. That's incredible. You've done so many, like, recognizable stuff. Like, people have grew up with these things, and you've just, like, popped in and out here, wrote an episode this, wrote an When you're working for a cartoon that you know somebody's going to produce, or you're, being, you're asked to write a cartoon episode, like, how... How do you get ready for that? Do you have to go and watch a bunch of Smurfs to write a Smurf episode? Or, like, how do you prepare well, if, for... Well, if it's a show that... And I did write the Smurfs. I know you did. Um, <laughs> um, if it's a show that's been on the air, yeah, you, you watch them because that gives you a real good sense of what the show's like. Mm-hmm. But even shows that are brand new that haven't been on the air yet, you get what's called a show Bible or series Bible, which basically tells you who the characters are, what the universe of the show is, and the kind of stories they want to do. And then your job typically is to come up with ideas for stories and to pitch them. And hopefully, if you're talented and lucky, they'll say, we like that one. Go write an outline on that one. And you write the outline and they give you notes and you either revise the outline or move on to the script. And you go through two or three drafts of the script, hopefully just two. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so if you're really lucky, you go through just one. But usually there's rewrites because, yeah. you know, the showrunner and the producers are living that show every day. You're there right. for the episode or right. a series of episodes. So you don't get everything exactly right. That's the process. And it's being able to put your mind in the head of the characters and the head of the audience and figure out what they would like. And, um, you know, I've written everything from the Smurfs and Curious George to real Ghostbusters, G.I. Joe, Beast Wars. Oh, wow. I've done shows in China, South America, Italy, France. I did two series in for a uh, cable channel in Dubai. This is as a writer? As a writer. You and wrote... A de- and a developer. I developed the shows okay. for them sometimes. You wrote, I believe, one episode of a cartoon that I thought was so cool as a kid. We did an episode a while ago about properties that we grew up watching that would be great rebooted. And I think Dino Saucers <laughs> would be... Do you remember? Do you, have you ever seen that show? You might be too young. Dino Saucers was essentially Transformers... But instead of robot, uh, instead of alien robots, it's alien dinosaurs. And there's a bunch of good ones, and there's a bunch of bad ones. See, every time we talk about like old cartoon properties, he blows my mind. I'm a little I, older than him. I didn't know what Dino Writers was until he talked about. It, and then is, I had to look that it's, up. It's, it's the same level Those of coolness. Writers as old as I am. <laughs> dinosaur. I'll, I'll tell you that. What's funny is earlier today, I found out that there is a graphic novel of dinosaurs coming out. What? And there is nothing definite and nothing announceable, but there may be more dinosaur-related things happening after that. 
it's so far from an actual thing. Sure. That, you know, but, and I have no more, I, have, I literally have no more information than I just told you. But there is a but graphic novel. that's a good novel, teaser. We'll have but to... there is a graphic novel coming out. I was just told wow. that earlier today. To our fans who do remember Dino Saucers or want to find out what the hell Dino Saucers is, oh, go dude. check out this graphic novel. <laughs> and if everybody buys a graphic novel, maybe more cool stuff will happen. No promises, but how awesome would that be? Dino Saucers. Yeah. <sighs> You have done so much in so many different regards. Can you, you don't necessarily have to give me the favorite, but can you give me one thing? Oh, you stole my question. That, uh, it's, a good, it's a good wrap up one. Can you give me one thing, one, one job, one property, one position that you held that is near and dear to your heart? You can't beat the years I spent at Lucasfilm. They were just. Amazing. I mean, I was I was a geek who just graduated college and suddenly I was in the middle of Star Wars, which Jeez. even before Star Wars came out, it's like, this is a really cool thing, <laughs> you know, and then afterwards it was an even cooler thing. So that, you know, there's so much exciting. And I've actually I've just written a book that will be out the end of the year called Star Wars Memories, which is basically I call it an anecdotal memoir. Uh, it's a bunch of stories about the years I was at Lucasfilm and all the things we did on the making of the film, because I spent time on the set with uh, several weeks during Making Empire and oh, man. all the promotion and Jealous all of the, here. you know, just all the different things we did. But it's all stories from my perspective that they're not stories you've ever heard before. They're not the Millennium Falcon okay. was this big. It's behind the scenes stories that... Are, are, will almost certainly be new to you. And, and where can we find that? Well, we don't know because okay. we're still negotiating with two publishers and we may just do it through Amazon, in which case you'll find it everywhere. Sure. But uh, I'll let you know when we know the exact release date. The plan is to have it release at EmpireCon, the mm -hmm. Star Wars convention sure. in LA in December. So anyway, that that's one whole big thing. And then... Um, I created and produced an animated series called Pocket Dragon Adventures in 1999. Um, and we, my partner and I, we sold the show. We did uh, 104 episodes of it. It played wow. all over the world. We were on the BBC in England seven days a week for six years. And that was really exciting. And it was the first show I ever sold. Um, so that was, you know, a major, I'd been writing animation for 10 years at that point. Um, but this was a major jump in my career to be able to do that. Wow. And that's just an incredible story. But I do have to say right now we are standing atop Hall H <laughs> and it is rumbling. Like I, for their second, I was like, is something happening? Yeah. Is there <laughs> it's a, like a earthquake robot level about to or come Tyrannosaurus Rex attack but level. That's so amazing to get to work on a property, write a property, sell a property, and then see it through to that many episodes. Yeah. Uh, so the Pocket Dragon Adventure. That's Pocket very Dragon cool. Adventures. Marv Wolfman and I, if you're a comics fan, you know sure. Marv's name. Uh, we were writing partners at the time. We co-developed it. We co-produced it. Uh, we each wrote 20 or so episodes. Uh, plus a couple episodes we wrote together, and then we hired a lot of other writers to write the other episodes, and we supervised them. Wow. Did you sleep at all during the last <laughs> 40 years? Like, not, not much. Not much. Huh. Well, Craig Miller, thank you so much for taking some time. Uh, 
the man I want to be when I grow up, right? With, with any one of these career choices, you've done a great job. Thank uh, you for well, thank all. Thank you. I mean, really, thank you for the memories you produced in one way, shape, or form so much of our childhood. Oh, my gosh, yes. I literally was probably watching an episode you wrote of Ghostbusters this weekend. My mom gave me the DVD of the first season, and I was watching a bunch of those, and it's yeah. like, I, I probably watched a couple of yeah, yours. Yeah, we, we were... There were sort of two versions. Joe Straczynski supervised. We did the um, syndicated episodes. Yeah. We did 65. And they were written to be like further further versions of the movie. Right. And then there was the regular network version, which was written much much more highly comedic, much sillier. Yeah. Much, you saw much more of Slimer in them sure. than in these. And so we were, we were writing the more serious actiony ones very cool and um and i and like i say i wrote three of those that's amazing man well thank you so much for coming on the show we really appreciate it we're the launchpad pod guys we are at comic-con 2019 uh we do a little secret handshake we were wondering if you'd like to uh join us with that for uh to finish off the show uh maybe so okay, here's what here, we do we'll show Put your we'll hand show, like this i'll show show you how you we come do. in top twist invert it, a and then you make ship. A, a rocket ship with a, a raspberry noise <laughs> that's what we do you want to join us? Here we go. Uh, okay. You got it? All right. All right, ready? Three, two, one. Whoosh. Turn to a rocket ship. <laughs> that was pretty good. No, no, no. <laughs> Craig Miller, thank you so much. San okay. Diego Comic Con 2019. Thank you guys. That was great. Thank you so much.